What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Middle-income families need help. Uh, we're coming out of COVID-19. We want to keep our economy strong. When you have an infrastructure bill, there's spin-off from that. There's spin-offs in cities and towns all across America. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We need to incentivize the manufacturing of chips in America. I do believe the vaccine is safe and effective. But I think what government's role is is to share the science, share the facts. Share the benefits. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Middle-income families need help. Uh, we're coming out of COVID-19. We want to keep our economy strong. When you have an infrastructure bill, there's spin-off from that. There's spin-offs in cities and towns all across America. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We need to incentivize the manufacturing of chips in America. I do believe the vaccine is safe and effective. But I think what government's role is is to share the science, share the facts share the benefits. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Who says the workers are not coming back? The July jobs report blows the doors off. May and June revised higher too. The unemployment rate fell. But there are a lot of questions about the future as COVID surges in parts of the country. Again, we'll talk about it coming up with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, who I sat down with today at the Labor Department. We'll also get a read on the report from economist Joe Lavornia at Natixis. And later we'll talk about the infrastructure bill with the Blockchain Association. Who would have thought crypto would be the final hurdle for this bill? But then who would have thought another president would appear in a tan suit? That happened today, too. Better than expected is the headline as the economy creates 943,000 jobs in July. That is more than economists predicted. And President Biden took a bit of a victory lap after the news hit. Now, while our economy is far from complete, and while we doubtlessly will have ups and downs along the way as we continue to battle the Delta surge of COVID, what is indisputable now is this. The Biden plan is working. The Biden plan produces results. And the Biden plan is moving the country forward. Joe Biden speaking at the White House earlier today, indeed, in a tan suit where he detailed economic data over the past few months to make a case for his economic policies, including, of course, infrastructure. Economic growth is the fastest in 40 years. Jobs are up. The unemployment rate is the lowest since the pandemic hit. Black unemployment is down as well. Why? Because we put in place the necessary tools early in my presidency. made the case for spending trillions more on infrastructure, which he says will make even more jobs. And so I sat down earlier today at the Labor Department with Secretary Marty Walsh and started by asking about what was behind the upside surprise, remembering that economists polled by Bloomberg, the Bloomberg survey called for an 870,000 advance. We got 943,000, the unemployment rate falling by a half percentage point to 5.4%. 
and started by asking Secretary Walsh about what was behind the upside surprise and so many employers have complained about not being able to fill open positions. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, President Biden's he laid out an economic plan in the beginning of his administration. Uh, it's clearly working. Uh, we've since the president's been inaugurated, uh, four million jobs have been added to our economy. The last three months we've added eight hundred thousand average per month. Uh, we're seeing uh, great gains this month in education, government education, and we've seen good gains in manufacturing, we've seen good gains in leisure, hospitality, and restaurants. Those are the three areas that I've heard the most about not having employees, but those the last three months have led the way as far as new job growth. So I think that the policies are working, and I think that you know the vaccine program that the president laid out uh, in, in the coronavirus, uh, kind of combating coronavirus has worked up to this point as well. Um, you know, the kind of things in the future that I'm concerned about a little bit uh, is the Delta variant. Uh, how do we get that under control? Uh, and, and how do we make sure that that doesn't cause us to have to shut down our economy mm-hmm. again uh, or shut down parts of our country? Uh, and then one area that, that, that today that kind of concerned me was the uh, CARES economy. There was the nursing home numbers uh, weren't, weren't too great. We actually lost jobs. And, and long term, that could have impacts because our population is getting older in some sectors and we need to make sure we have facilities for people, uh, whether it's day programs or long term programs that people go into. Well, indeed, uh, you just pointed it out. It's, it looks like a story of reopening transportation, health services, leisure and hospitality. Your former city of Boston had the hardest hit, I believe, in the hospitality industry in the entire country from COVID. But these are by definition backward looking, right? We saw Delta take hold in the time that these numbers were being tabulated. Do you worry about an interruption in that trend as we go into August and September? Of course you have to worry about it. I mean, there's no question about it. You can't sugarcoat it and you have to make sure you keep an eye on it. And I think that the difference here is this is like, I mean, depending on on what you define as a spike, this would be the third or fourth or fifth spike in the virus in different parts of the country. Um, We know the science tells us we can get it under control. We can get under control by getting people vaccinated. We can get under control by by wearing masks. Uh, And and for some reason, it seems to have turned into a political issue, wearing a mask and being vaccinated. And and that's very short-sighted and very dangerous for a lot of people. Uh, that, that, That if you refuse to get put a mask on because because you don't think you should, if you get the virus and, and something happens to you, uh, then, then your problems are going to be far worse. Are you happy then when you see companies step up and, and offer their own vaccine or mask mandates? And I'd ask you again what I did a couple of weeks ago. Should unions be in that business of, of issuing mandates for workers to control job sites and so forth? Well, I think there's a, a lot of – well, first and foremost, I think that it's great to see companies uh, – focusing on this because companies want to reopen. And I think that uh, we want to reopen our economy and having companies open means our economy is reopening. So I want to th- I'm glad they're stepping up and they're not stepping up, I shouldn't say that. I'm glad they're coming to the table more and more. Um, you know, I was listening to some of the union leadership on the on the on, on some TV shows over the last couple of days. Uh, you know, the leadership of the union represents unions. They represent members. Uh, and what they want what they do is they kind of follow what the members say. I do think, though, that the union should be advocating to their members that it's important to get vaccinated. Uh, whether whether or not they can insist and, and demand they get vaccinated, that I would say that as a union member, you, union leader, you can't do that. But I would say I would suggest to union leaders strongly encourage your membership to get vaccinated and don't fight this. This is this is about keeping people safe, whether you're a union member or not union member. It's about keeping people safe. You've said pretty consistently that there's no evidence that expiring enhanced unemployment benefits will send people back to work or are sending people back to work in the states that we've seen. Is that still the case now or does that have something to do with the uptick in these numbers? No, I think it's still the case. I mean, last month, 
uh, numbers was 934,000 new jobs to the economy. Uh, this month's number is 943,000 new jobs to the economy. Uh, I don't see the un- unemployment benefit being being what's keeping out people out. I think what it is is more sectors opening up, more sectors hiring, more sectors, uh, you know, aggressively finding employees. I think that that's what's what we're seeing here today. I, I just don't feel that that $300 is the reason. We saw an uptick in uh, in some education workers this past month. Will that increase as kids go back to school, schools reopen, and, and we get back to some kind of a pattern here in September? Well, it should. I mean, ultimately what happened during the pan- beginning days of the pandemic, Boston wasn't one of these cities, but many cities laid people off and furloughed people. Uh, when the American Rescue Plan was passed, a lot of money went down to cities and towns and, and states. They need to start spending that money. They need to start thinking about the people they let go and bring them back. And we're seeing a lot of education hiring this month because we're getting ready for school in September. Uh, and I think that's also another reason why we're seeing people come into the economy. The president made a $39 billion investment in child care in the American Rescue Plan. Uh, that money over now has been out in the street for six months. So now, six weeks, I should say. So now you're starting to see child care facilities open up and, and, and more opportunities for parents to, to have their kids, you know, keep busy during the day so they can go to work. Mm-hmm. We had an eviction moratorium extended uh, just in the past week. That has a correlation to jobs, right? If you lose your home, it's hard to report to work. It's hard to maintain any kind of a, a routine in your life. I wonder how concerned you are about that potentially being rescinded or going into the fall at some point. That's not going to that protection, that safety net might not be there. Yeah, well, the president extended it the other day because we had to because of, of the Delta variant. And I think that, you know, we have to, we're going to watch that variant very closely. Uh, to see how we can move forward. I know that uh, the eviction moratorium kept lots of people in this country in their home and not on the street uh, to a system that wouldn't be able to handle the capacity of homeless families. Uh, So I think that we just have to continue to keep an eye on this variant. A lot of what's being driven now in the future is going to be in the next few weeks is what's going to happen with the variant. And if we can get the variant under control, if we can make sure that people aren't getting the variant, also keeping our hospitals from being over capacity. I saw in Florida yesterday, I think today, maybe uh, the hospitals are at capacity again. I mean, our, our hospital system can't, can't keep taking that hit. So we have to do everything we can to, to, to ease the burden on our hospital system, on our care system, uh, and, and, and other systems we have in place. You, of course, uh, were a union leader before you became mayor, before you became secretary. And I know that you had a long relationship with Richard Trumka, and I want to say condolences uh, for his loss. How do you frame that impact on organized labor, and what's the future of the AFL-CIO? Yeah, Richard Trumka, um, he, was, he was a great labor leader. Uh, he started out uh, as a mine worker. He was worked in the mines, got his hands dirty, uh, rose to be the head of the Mine Workers Union at a very young age, uh, led them and fought in a hard industry, fought hard for, for his workers, became the president of the AFL-CIO in 2009, really has made a tremendous impact for workers all across America in, in you know, 20, 20, 22 years, I guess, of leadership. Uh, when he, while he was there, he's going to be severely, extremely missed. Uh, you know, he, he, was, he was a giant in the labor movement, um, and he was somebody who just fought for workers every single day, morning, noon, and night. He fought, and he fought for not just union workers, he fought for all workers in America. So uh, it, it, it'll be a big loss. And, and I think that, you know, uh, we're going to let, you know, he'll be laid to rest, and, and then there'll be a conversation about who's next and what the next direction of the labor movement is. But I think that a lot of what Richard Trumka has done will continue in, with the next leader of the AFL-CIO. Is that a job that you would consider taking? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I have a job right now that's an important job for, for uh, working with the President of the United States of America, and we have a lot of work to do with the Department of Labor. Mr. Secretary, it's great to see you. Thanks for having Bloomberg at the Labor Department today. Thank you. Thanks, Joe.
And before we move on, a little bit of background here, by the way. We're talking about leisure and hospitality jobs up by 380,000. And the participation rate, the labor force participation rate up to 61.7% in July. There have been a lot of questions about that as people start looking for work and employers say they're not finding enough of them. As far as unemployment insurance benefits go, we talked about this. A lot of people say this is why workers aren't coming back. Well, they're making more at home than they were at work. Questions about that today, about whether the president plans to extend enhanced unemployment benefits beyond September. Press Secretary Jen Psaki. There has not been any decision about this at this point. He's still deciding whether to ask to renew them, whether to seek to renew them or not. Correct. At this point, they're expiring uh, at the beginning of September. Uh, Nothing has changed on that front, uh, but a final decision has not been made. There you have it. So we'll let you know when there is a final decision. And coming up, we'll get the view on the jobs report, the recovery, and the benefits, for that matter, from Joe Lavornia, chief economist at Natixis, former Trump economic advisor. He's next on Sound On. So stay with us. We'll check traffic and the markets coming up. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. A lot of questions about an economic rebound against the backdrop of COVID. Today's jobs report was encouraging to many, even prompting some to expect the Fed to start tapering sooner than later. We'll see about that. We're joined now by Joe Lavornia. Former Trump White House economic advisor, now chief economist at Natixis. Welcome back to Bloomberg, Joe. Were you impressed by today's jobs numbers? And maybe more importantly, are they sustainable? I was. I was, uh, I was impressed. It was a very good report. Um, you have to call it the way you see it. Uh, you had uh, uh, over 900,000 jobs. But what was interesting, Joe, was the household survey, which was even better. It showed a nearly 800,000 drop in uh, unemployed and over a one million increase in household employed. It's another companion series to the payroll data, as yeah. as you may know. And uh, yeah, it was a great report. Strong strong wages. Um, hours were high. The diffusion index, which measures job breadth, was about sixty eight percent. It was a great report. And uh, you know, I would say this: Look, uh, the current administration has a good economy. Economy is very healthy. I would just leave it there. And I, I do get worried about what might be coming down on the spending side. But 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 these data were great. I do think there'll be some slowing at some point. But uh, but the numbers are great, and we should celebrate it. Well, that's that's nice to hear. I'll ask you about that spending in a second. What do you make of the participation rate? Sixty one point seven percent. Are people coming back at the rate we need them to? We still have. Gosh, you take away the the nine hundred and forty three thousand jobs we got today. We still have almost six million more to recover. That's right. Five point eight to be exact. And labor force participation. It was up a tenth. To uh, to sixty one seven, I believe, but it's yeah. it's very much in a range. It hasn't really changed much in the last six to eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something we're watching and would like to see higher. It's certainly possible that, again, depending on what happens with COVID and the variants, et cetera, that that uh, as the unemployment benefits expire and and people have childcare, because uh, I think a lot of people unfortunately may have wanted to go back to work but couldn't because their kids weren't in school. Um, and I'm not sure if they feel more comfortable going back because of what's happening medically with the virus, but mm-hmm. there are reasons why they haven't been back to work. Um, so I'm hopeful that maybe if things break the right way, you'll see participation rise. But I want to say that if you look at the employment-to-population ratio, which is similar to participation but not exactly the same series, that rose um, four-tenths of a percent. 
And that was a nice increase. It was the biggest increase we've had at the highest level since uh, March of 2020. So, you know, there are some pockets of weakness. But again, as I said at the outset, it's a very good report. We should celebrate it. And, um, you know, always there's always something you can gripe about that needs to be better. But the point is the directions is moving in in, in the right place. It's positive. Most of the headlines here sure seem good. A lot of people are wondering, though, about unemployment benefits and whether the expiration of of the enhanced benefits is part of the reason why people are coming back, realizing there may not be a single reason. But if they're going away in September, Joe, does that mean we're going to have a flood of workers coming back? It's possible, and I would say most firms would like it because right now there's about roughly one million more jobs open than there are people who are unemployed. So uh, people, there might be a flood of people coming back, but they would be coming back to work. So that's the positive side of things. Yeah. You know, again, what happens on the virus and if there's further economic restrictions, that's a different matter. But, but certainly there are jobs to be had. I imagine a lot of good jobs because, as I cited earlier, the diffusion index measures job breath. When you have nearly 70% of industries employing people, there's a lot of good jobs that are to be had. So I'm optimistic that people will be coming back in September and the economy will, will gear up even even faster and that we're going to recover, hopefully, all of the pandemic-related job losses by early next year. That would you be wonder if, thing. if the UI is, makes the difference if child care or maybe it's a combination of the two. Mayor, uh, I always call him mayor. The Secretary Walsh uh, echoing remarks we heard from Jen Psaki and the president himself to say there's no evidence that 300 bucks makes the difference between somebody going back to work or not. I think the problem is that's, that's a little bit, the way it's defined, that may seem like that's logical, but when you include the extended benefits, yeah. you know, the emergency benefits on top of that, and the other credits that have been given uh, um, to households, it adds up to a lot more than just 300 and um, I, think that's, I think that's the issue. But, look, the thing is, even Larry Summers had said, and he mentioned this back in, in 2011 when he was uh, head of the um, NEC under President Obama, that you know, when, if, when people are out of the workforce for a longer, longer period of time, their skills tend to atrophy and they don't come back. So what we want to do is we want to try to get people back into the workforce as soon as possible. And if there's any disincentive, even at the marginal side of things, that they're not coming back, that'll ultimately hurt them. So I think you know we want to provide assistance when necessary, but also realize that there's some disincentives we could put in place that don't bring people back that ultimately is to the detriment of the broader economy. Another thing that I keep hearing uh, from economists, Joe, is maybe yourself included, is that once people get a raise, Employers don't take those back either. And you mentioned the spending that's coming, the wage inflation we're seeing, inflation across the board for that matter. Do you believe that infrastructure itself, if it's passed in its current form, will make it worse? I, 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 well, I don't know if the infrastructure by itself will be worse. It's the infrastructure combined with other spending that is likely to come in addition the to the reconciliation that might follow. Correct, because, I mean, the CBO – so just to give you a couple examples, the, if you look at the CBO data – and how they score things on current law, not including this infrastructure bill, which we'll talk about in a moment, but the CBO's numbers versus the Office of Management and Budget numbers, which include the administration's budget. Over a five-year period, the cumulative difference in debt-to-GDP over versus the two planes is about 13% of GDP. It's a massive number. So I get worried that in an economy, according to the CBO, that already is going to run next year yeah. at its hottest rate relative to potential since 1971. We're going to talk more about infrastructure ahead with the Blockchain Association. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. It looks like lawmakers are getting a big lesson in crypto today. After the bipartisan infrastructure deal came to a screeching halt last night in the Senate over an argument on the way crypto transactions are reported. We'll talk about it ahead. So will cryptocurrency be the final hurdle in the endless saga of the bipartisan infrastructure plan? It certainly stopped a vote from happening last night after a group of senators led by Ron Wyden offered an amendment to more narrowly focus tax reporting requirements to those making crypto transactions on exchanges. That was answered by an amendment, another amendment, by several of the bill's negotiators, think Portman, Cinema, Warner, to include miners, crypto miners, and even some software companies. And the White House endorsed it. Press Secretary Jen Psaki today. And we are very grateful to Chairman Wyden for his leadership in pushing the Senate to address this issue. As I noted a little earlier, uh, we are pleased with the progress that has yielded a compromise uh, sponsored by Senators Warner, Portman, and Cinema to advance the bipartisan infrastructure package and clarify the measure to reduce tax evasion. The Blockchain Association, representing the industry, says that amendment would be disastrous for the U.S. crypto ecosystem, tweeted as much last night. And certainly got our attention as they have now entered the conversation. We're joined by the association's executive director, Kristen Smith. Kristen, welcome back. Are you concerned about the last minute nature of this process or the actual contents of the amendment? Uh, both. I mean, this is not a way to provide new um, you know, laws and regulations for a space that is incredibly complicated to understand. And there's a lot of nuance. So we were very disappointed uh, to see this amendment come in last minute, though I do think it is a compliment that uh, that uh, the negotiators in the bill felt that they had to take such a drastic measure because we have had such an outpouring of support from the cryptocurrency industry and cryptocurrency community for the Wyden Amendment, which is the one that we have been pushing. Um, but, you know, in, in the lead-in up here and, and what the White House is saying today is that the Warner Amendment is a compromise 
from the industry perspective and the broader community as well, the Warner Amendment is actually worse than the underlying text as written, which is already bad. And so the reason it's worse is because it picks winners and losers among the different types of technology that different blockchains are built upon. And we think it would be an incredible step backwards. Um, it would be, I think, unprecedented for something like this that would regulate um, and permit certain types of technologies over others into into a bill of this nature in such a last minute way. And so we are, um, you know, have been working around the clock here in Washington, urging senators to continue to support the Wyden Amendment and oppose the Warner Amendment. And we're hopeful, uh, you know, that we'll still be able to get a vote on, on the Wyden Amendment tomorrow in the U.S. Senate. All right. So for the purposes of this conversation, we're going with the Wyden Amendment, which you like, and the Warner Amendment, which the White House likes. I just want to make sure people understand what we're talking about because yes. they actually sound yes. similar here. Now, Kristen, what would happen if the Warner Amendment became law? Why would it be disastrous? Well, it would be disastrous because, you know, there are multiple blockchains. Blockchain technology um, was something that started with Bitcoin um, a little over 10 years ago. And has since um, there have been many successor blockchains, and they all have different purposes and different functions. And there are a lot of really smart computer scientists that are working on them and building them. And it's, it's really a it's just a remarkable um, technology. It's still in the nascent stages, but this would basically say that one type of blockchain technology called proof of work is the only one that wouldn't have to be subject to these reporting requirements, which are impossible to comply with. You know, I want to emphasize, nobody's saying that if you're going to Coinbase and, and purchasing cryptocurrency, that Coinbase shouldn't provide that information to both their customer and to the IRS at the end of the year. That, that is something the industry has long wanted. But when you have these, these different types of participants that are helping contribute to the network, but don't have access to any information and don't even have customers, how should they be you know, even though they're helping the, build the network that's facilitating transactions, they shouldn't be held responsible for information they don't have. And that's what the language would do today. And what happens with the Warner Amendment is it actually makes it worse and selects one type of technology while excluding all of the rest of them. And, and we just don't think that's the right approach. And this is why you shouldn't be running, you know, the, the, the Senate or the White House, they shouldn't be trying to push this through last minute. This is something that needs a lot of discussion a lot of debate, and I think we could clear this up if we had the time to yeah. educate more Senate offices. So as we follow uh, your rationale, though, Kristen, in, in the end, does that mean people would be therefore reluctant to invest in, in crypto and we would yeah, see financial I mean, losses for those holding so it? Things. Yes. I mean, I think I think it, people would be reluctant to invest um, as holders, but more importantly, the operations of the network, um, we wouldn't be able to do that here in the U.S. You know, you have to remember these these blockchains are not owned and operated by any company. These these are decentralized networks where many different participants, whether it be a software developer or somebody who wants to do the work of mining or staking by, you know, hooking up their equipment and using their electricity to help run the network. It's, it's the beauty of these networks is it's, it's a, it is a network. And so um, all of those participants that help run the underlying blockchains, the cryptocurrencies, um, fuel would not be able to operate here in the U.S. And so they'd be either have to shut down or they would have to go overseas because it would be absolutely impossible to comply with the requirements sure. uh, that, this, that this legislation there are opposing. 
We're talking with Kristen Smith, Executive Director of the Blockchain Association. When you talk to your members, Kristen, you, you call the association the unified voice of the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry. Is it fair to say that crypto traders, those who were kind of the pioneers in this marketplace, were wary of government to begin with, and that's why that's why we got here? Well, yeah. I mean, I think in the early days of Bitcoin, um, there was sort of a libertarian nature. But, you know, the, the crypto industry and the, and the broader ecosystem have come a long way. Um, and there are, you know, people of all sorts of political backgrounds that are involved. Um, there, There's a, a very diverse community of participants. And I think that, you know, the number of users, the, the number of developers, the number um, of people running the operations of the network have, have grown. And, you know, I've been, I'm just so pleased that we have finally, um, you know, maybe not under the most ideal circumstances, but finally been able to come together and um, with one voice in Washington. And I don't think at the start of this, anyone thought that the last issue standing would be a cryptocurrency amendment. So yeah. we'll, we'll, Kristen we'll, Smith. Like, our, we'll feel our voice has been heard. At the Blockchain Association, your voice is being heard here on Sound On, and we appreciate your being with us. Sounds like a working weekend for Kristen, too. Coming up, we present all this to our Friday Reporters panel. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Now, it looks like a working weekend ahead. Didn't I say that last Friday? But yes, it appears senators will be at work through at least tomorrow. Back to it on Saturday as they hash out the final sticking points by way of amendments in the bipartisan infrastructure deal. And we're joined now on Sound On by Bloomberg Government's Jack Fitzpatrick and Emily Wilkins, our Reporters Roundtable. We just spoke with the Blockchain Association. Guys, about this back and forth on taxing and I guess more specifically reporting in crypto transactions. Once this is done, Jack, I'll start with you assuming this gets done. Will there be a vote, or are there other things to resolve? Well, they're trying to wrap things up, but it, there are a number of issues that trip them up as of yesterday. You know, talking to senators yesterday, it sounded like it wasn't just the crypto measure that held them up. It was, uh, you know, the way Chris Coons described it is everybody kind of got into the mindset, oh, this person is offering an amendment. Why don't I offer an amendment? Why doesn't everybody else offer an amendment? So it sounds like there are a number of issues, but eventually they wrap it up. The, the plan appears to be probably take that procedural vote to close out debate uh, maybe tomorrow, mm -hmm. and then maybe by Monday they could ho hold the vote on passage. Uh, but we'll see if they could get unanimous consent to even speed it up a little bit. How difficult do you think that will be, Emily? And what are you hearing about the, uh, the whole amendment process? Is it over once we get through this? So, I mean, this is the thing that we have less left to figure out, right? It's the amendments. As soon as we get through the amendments, we're through. And I think Jack pointed out kind of a very good point here. Right now, if you're a senator, you have an incentive to come out and say, oh, hey, last minute, one quick thing, can we do this? But I think we're at the point we've been in this process for such a long time, so many months of negotiating, so many weeks of getting close enough, that really at this point, the votes are there. It's just the little details that they are figuring out. And we do see a high level of confidence from Majority Leader Chuck Schumer that whether uh, this bill gets a final vote on Saturday, on Sunday, or on Monday, that it is going to have the votes that it needs to pass. Jack, we talked just yesterday about the score. Right? The CBO scored the bill, and you helped us understand uh, what was going on here. But $256 billion, I believe it was, uh, would, would potentially become uh, part of the deficit. Right. 
Now, that's, of course, when we factor in all the language that that CBO didn't acknowledge that the White House had on there for the bill paying for itself. But where I'm getting to here is if if this crypto situation changes, if the amendment is rewritten, does that change the pay fors and therefore change the score? It can have an effect, but you know, I, I'm not sure that's going to be as significant as the things they have already worked out. Mm-hmm. Also, in a practical political sense, we've already heard from people like Rob Portman and Kirsten Cinema saying, you know, we we know what's in the bill, and the CBO score doesn't matter as much. They didn't feel like it, it gave enough credit. It, it didn't do the dynamic scoring that they wanted that gives credit for economic growth that it cr- could create. They didn't get exactly what they want. Uh, or see eye to eye with the CBO in terms of unemployment insurance money that might not be spent. Um, basically, they know that they, they know what's in it. They know if they think it pays for itself. And there might be tweaks to the actual effects of what a CBO score would be, depending on other amendments. Uh, and there is another one on on flexibility of state funds that were previously given out. They can use mm. it for infrastructure and that kind of thing. Yeah. But I don't think it massively changes anything because we've already heard from senators saying, "I basically know what's in the bill. I know that it pays for itself enough to me." So maybe we get an up or down here at the beginning of next. Next week, Emily, based on what I've heard from both of you here, uh, then it goes to the House. Are we going to see some major grandstanding next door? So we're already seeing major grandstanding in the House. Uh, yeah. Some very loud concerns, particularly from Chairman Pete DeFazio, who's chair of the Transportation Infrastructure Committee. He was the lead behind a bill that the House passed back in July that dealt with a lot of infrastructure, water, highways, that sort of thing. And he is not happy with the Senate bill. And he has made that known. He's concerned that there are some provisions on pollution that were left out of the Senate package. The question is, of course, what can be done at this point? Because the Senate deal, it took so long to come together. In a way, it's very tentative, right? If you move a little bit, if you make a couple changes here or there, things are going to fall apart. I mean, Mitt Romney told me this week that, you know, any substantial changes would prevent this from becoming law. So the House kind of has their hands tied a little bit here on exactly what they can do. One thing I spoke with um, Senator Carper, who's been leading the floor debate, a Democrat from Delaware. He said he's been in touch with Pete DeFazio and that he thinks that they can address his concerns in that other bill that they're doing with this two track system, that three point five trillion reconciliation package. It was just last week, Jack. Peter DeFazio said I could give a damn about the White House when he was asked about supporting the way this bill was already crafted. Is he going to start cooling off a little bit when we get over to the House, or is that where we're starting? You know, it's been surprising, the the frustration in the tone from Peter DeFazio. One thing I would point out, he, he has mentioned a few times, you know, he's the chair of the Transportation and Infrastructure yeah. Committee. He's sort of got the policy expertise here. But keep in mind, in the Senate, they ultimately went through this political route of getting these small groups of sort of centrists together because his Senate Republican counterpart, Shelley Moore Capito, couldn't get the deal done. No offense to her, but she she's sort of the policy expert, so to speak, of Republican senators on this. Yep. And it just didn't work. They couldn't get something to get 60 votes. So it's as a political a practice as a policy practice. Can we uh, read into today's jobs report at all in framing this infrastructure debate? It came in hotter than expected. We've had several people tell us this hour that if we're looking at this kind of economic data, 943,000 jobs, far more than economists expected in some cases. Why are we spending all this money to to pump up the economy right now? We're going to simply risk more inflation. 
You know, I would point out they have been talking about paying for their major bills for long enough so that clearly, at least in a political rhetorical sense, this is not supposed to be a stimulus. It's supposed to basically redistribute uh, wealth or spending uh, and take public funds. Send emails to Jeff. I mean, that's the next Democratic bill. There are tax measures where they want to increase taxes on the rich and extend the child tax credit, that kind of thing. The infrastructure measure, okay, it's not entirely paid for according to the CBO. So yes, it may inject, it may be sort of a fiscal injection of funds into the economy, but the point is to do things and reach policy objectives that have not been accomplished uh, rather than just sort of flooding the zone with money the way they more or less did with the stimulus, the stimulus $1.9 sure. trillion. I'll also jump in real quick and say here that you know when you talk to lawmakers about why this needs to get done, both yeah. the bipartisan infrastructure plan as well as that more comprehensive reconciliation plan, they don't talk about the jobs report. You don't hear them talk about the economy too much. What they talk about is delivering for voters. When they talk about this, they do so in terms of that voters gave them the House, the Senate, and the White House in 2020, and they want to make sure voters do so again in 2022. And that, I think, is a big motivator and a big driver for a lot of Democrats in terms of what they need to get done here. I need to ask you both in our remaining moment together, did you see the suit? President (laughs) Biden today in a tan summer suit. Did he not learn from his predecessor? Or, Emily, have the rules changed? Honestly, I remember seeing people during the Trump presidency who, when something crazy would happen, they would be like, do you guys ever miss the time that the biggest scandal in Washington (laughs) was a tan suit? So I think there's a bit of a relief that, that that we are finally back to that stage. Do you have a tan suit in your closet, Jack? I don't. I you don't. I don't either. Get no. one. It's Washington. Well, sure. It's hot. You got to wear light colors. Go seersucker, man. No. The tan no, suit. They don't. Do no. Listen. Was he trying to start something? <laughs> we all learned from President Obama that a tan suit at the podium is a recipe for scandal. You just heard Emily. Suit gate. Anyone? Brings us back to 2014. That's when it happened. President Obama walked into the briefing room wearing a tan suit and all hell broke loose over the audacity of taupe. And as long as I got my suit and tie. Michelle and I joke about the fact that uh, one of the bigger scandals of my presidency was me wearing a tan suit during uh, a press conference. You know the image makers in the White House. Here's a president coming out at such a serious moment where he should be addressing the country on such a serious matter, and he looked like he was on his way to a party at the Hamptons. I, I think it was shocking to a lot of people. The president stands squarely behind the decision that he made yesterday to wear his summer suit at yesterday's news conference. I was sorely tempted to wear a tan suit today <laughs> for my last press conference, but. Michelle, whose fashion sense is a little better than mine, tells me that's not appropriate in January. Maybe Michelle needs to talk to Dr. Jill? Or the White House Taylor? Or maybe the rules have changed in this partisan breakdown we call Washington. After all, I shaved off my beard this week. A clean start, I thought. And now people aren't sure what to say when they see me. My own mother told me, you can always grow it back. And she's right. But I think I'll give it a chance. Follow my own path. Do what feels right. Just don't ask me to wear a tan suit. Emily, Jack, thank you both for being here. And I'll meet you back here Monday.
for the fastest hour in politics. It's called Bloomberg Sound On, and I appreciate you spending time with us here every afternoon as we connect the dots between policy and politics and the issues that affect you and your family. Have a great weekend. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.